He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. Welcome back to Honestly Unorthodox. Today we are covering just about everything related to all of the topics and burning questions you guys have had related to insurance billing and private equity. Is ABA therapy actually helping us? And we also are going to get a little bit into assisted suicide and other quote unquote therapeutic tactics that are used in an effort to make people happier, which is questionable. I have with me Adam today. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh my gosh, that is so sweet of you to say. You know what, Adam? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we we hop into the the juicy details? Sure. So I am a BCDA. I am the regional clinical manager of a company down here in Florida. I manage three counties. We're in probably five or six different counties all across like the southern part of Florida. And I don't like to say kind of like a lot of other people in behavior analysis, I found it by accident. I answered Mm -hmm. a job ad on monster.com in 2006. Whoa, is monster still a thing? (laughs) I don't even know, honestly. (laughs) But I answered an ad and they were calling for a special education teacher with no experience. I was a psychology undergrad, recent graduate, and thought, hey, why am I going to take $10 an hour to get my ass kicked in (laughs) an inpatient unit when I was making 14 an hour being a lifeguard? So yeah. they were like, hey, we'll start you at $42,000. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And it's a gold mine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Swimming in cash, like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. And then um, when I started, it was a um, it was a speech program through Johns Hopkins with one okay. client, one research subject. And it was based in ABA, but they were really studying his speech production and two the best of our knowledge, he was the latest person to, to develop actual vocal speech, like speaking sentences. So he developed wow. that around 16 years old. So 16. I came into ABA. Yeah. I came into ABA with like a lot of hope yeah. and a lot of, um, I still have a lot of hope, but I, I came in with like a lot, like seeing, you know, this, this person who was essentially nonverbal, nonvocal up until about 16 years old, made his first legitimate utterances and then turned them into phrases, turned them into sentences. He was never, he's never going to be able to be on a podcast, but he can carry on um, wants and needs in terms of conversation and stuff like that. And his receptive sure. ability was great. So then I left that and went to erroneously, I was like, hey, I know enough about ABA. I'm just going to go off my own without an RBT or a BCABA credential. Thankfully, I didn't do any harm. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like a glorified babysitting situation. Yeah. And then I found, I kind of had at a crossroads in my life. My dad was when we were growing up and actually still is, he's a facilitator for large companies. So he comes in and trains people how to train people. Oh, so I was going to cool. go that route or I was going to go the BCBA route. And it just so happens that the BCBA opportunity answered my ad or like my, my job posting first. So I took that one and kind of found this here. And then personally, um, I like to be outdoors as much as possible. My handle on Instagram is the outdoor BCBA. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I used to be an MMA fighter. A lot of toxic masculinity going on over here. Totally. (laughs) I think that you need to um, uptake a different hobby to kind of level out the the toxicity. I could just hear it in your voice. It's awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Should you leave now or should we keep going? (laughs) No, I think we can keep going. I can deal with it. I think I'll, I I can deal with it too, because this is about me, not you, Adam, by the way. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. (laughs) So you had a great experience of coming into the field, seeing the potential for ABA. I feel like from the people I've spoken to, and I, I lump my own experience under this, is half of it is being really inspired by the changes we've been able to see or witness firsthand or even be a part of. The other half is just seeing how awful treatment has been and feeling like we can do better than that and trying to rectify you know, some, some degree of good quality care. And I, I wonder your thoughts on, on private equity starting to infiltrate all of ABA therapy? So again, being in the field for almost 17 years, I've had a lot of experiences through 
different companies and different structures and different, you know, jobs that I've had personally. And mm-hmm. I personally have never had a good experience with private equity firms. Um, I know that there are people out there that swear by them. There's a woman that I very much respect who sold her practice and then took a very high paying position or high falutin position in the company after it bought her small company out. Mm-hmm. And she swears by it. She says it was the best thing that she had ever done and they were doing fantastic things. But I don't think in, at least in my experience that it's beneficial. Um, a couple experiences that I had that were frustrating to say the least were when um, one specifically comes to mind during COVID I was working for a company, I think they're in 17 states, and I was an independent contractor. And we had a client who, well, first of all, the RBT was billing fraudulently, like Mm -hmm. to the tune of 40 hours every two weeks that they were saying they were there when they weren't actually there. So that's essentially a full-time job that they were claiming fraud. And I brought it to their attention with proof and all these other types of things. And they're like, well, you know, why don't we give her another chance? I'm like, give her another chance? Oh, wait, she's making you money because when she's billing, you can take the money so that you don't really care. So I had to really, really push and put everything in writing and they, you know, removed her from the case. I have no idea what happened after that. Mm -hmm. They might have put her on a different case or they might have fired her entirely. But the, the, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back was we, so COVID hit and Connecticut was, at this time I was living in Connecticut and they were really strict in terms of you know, two weeks to stop the spread and the curve and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So schools were shut down. Um, No in-person therapy could happen. Even though we were medical professionals, no in-person therapy could happen. And this family was dealing with a kid who was supremely aggressive. He was probably seven or eight years old and he would just engage in aggression because he didn't have the means to communicate. And they were like, well, why don't we teach the parents? And I tried to convey to them that teaching the parents to be the RBT makes mm-hmm. it so that there's just a supreme amount of parental burnout that's going to come from that because they can't yeah. take off the RBT hat and be like, I'm going to be mom now. The kid is mm-hmm. going to see the person that's placing demands on them and restricting access to the rewards. And if it's an RBT, we can leave. And then mom can take the you know touchy-feely, lovey-dovey approach. But if mom is the RBT, not going to go well. I said my piece. They removed me from the case, lied to the family. The family mm-hmm. then called me and told me what they had said. Like, well, we'll give them another chance. And this type of stuff. And it wasn't a matter of like, hey, I was removed. I've been removed from cases plenty of times for seemingly ridiculous reasons. But -hmm. it was just that the company didn't have the back of the therapist and didn't have the back of the clinical team because I thought what we were raising was legitimate. It was a very legitimate concern. Um, Mm -hmm. And they just, no, that's fine. Whatever. Just go. And they continued to bill and I never heard from that client again. So I hope they're doing well, but yeah, I hope in that regard. Yeah, I've, you know, parent training was something that I always really loved about the field. And when I started my business, it was all parent training. And I talked to a few supervision students the other day about this thing where when we go in asking parents to take data and like you said, essentially take on the role of an RBT, it's not only like, like, uh, as you mentioned also that it could lead to burnout within a parent, but it just creates this very dysfunctional type of relationship where the parent is primed to analyze their child's every move. And I can't imagine that it's easy for parents to be a loving parent while also detaching themselves from trying to count every behavior that they see because that's what they've been taught. So it's just this this really confusing way that that we're taught how to conduct parent training, which I find odd. Well, I think the I have to disagree with you to a certain extent. I don't think we're okay. taught to do parent training. That's As a good BCBAs, point. Really I don't remember taught. really. Yeah. I don't remember any, like, this is your parent training course. It's one-on-one parent true. training. Like they don't, we don't do that. And yeah. what I've come to realize over the course of the past few months and specifically the past few years since I've been in the world that I'm in right now is RBTs and BCBAs and BCABAs are fantastic because they control their own behavior in these situations. Yeah, we know all the jargon, we know all the, you know, but I have a plan and I stick to that plan for better or for worse. Parents, they need a plan and they need to have an understanding that their behavior is what's controlling this environment and their behavior and reaction to their kids' behavior is ultimately what's going to make this kid successful. So 
it's not so much that can you collect data and can you identify antecedents or any of this other stuff. It's do you have an understanding of how you should be responding and are you doing that consistently? And that's really what I try to get across to parents and to, you know, brand new RBTs. And I just use less jargon with the parents than with the RBTs. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Sometimes I say we're taught because I I Mm -hmm. think that we, I don't know, this is, I want your thoughts on this too. I feel like the absence of teaching in, in regards to parent training we almost take the role of how we would supervise a team of technicians. And because we've had no training, we assume that it could apply in the same way to parents. And do you think that's where some of the confusion or resistance to parent training comes from? Yeah. Um, I'm a parent um, and I'm a BCBA. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky in that both of my kids are are not autistic or Mm -hmm. autistic individuals or have autism or whatever words and combination of words we're supposed to use today. But <laughs> what from from a parental standpoint and being a BCBA, it's difficult because I always think about how this behavior is going to affect them in like three years, two, mm-hmm. two, three years down the line, when in actuality, I might just need to live in the moment. So I can't imagine how difficult it, it is for a parent who's constantly living in the moment to then because they have a subject matter expert sitting across them be like, well, this is how we're thinking about it in a year and six months with authorizations. And then they have to change their frame of thinking. And that sometimes we don't give them enough guidance on how exactly to do that. Like sometimes just, just chill out, just deal with today for today. Don't worry about in six months. Don't worry about in, you know, seven years when they're 15 years old, like let's deal with just today and we can get through today. So it's being able to turn off and on the the correct areas of my brain, the BCBA part and the parent part. Did that take a while for you or did it come pretty naturally out of the gate? I still don't know, really know how to do it. This is why I have a fantastic <laughs> wife who constantly reminds me, stop. So yeah, not, I think I'm, that's helpful. I'm working at it. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a work in progress. That's a, that's reassuring to hear for all of the BCBA parents <clears throat> out there. What I've heard from people that are BCBAs and parents is that uh, some level of guilt because they say that ABA completely goes out the window when it comes to parenting because- it's not a patient. It's your child. And they say, I should know better than to to coddle or hug them when they do this. But I just, I can't bring myself to do it. So I imagine that that's a very conflicting position to be in. It is actually my, my um, she doesn't like to be called my boss, but she's, she is my boss. She's the person. Oh, the that's company. noble. Her and I are, her and I are, <laughs> um, have a bunch of uh, CEUs for possibly like workshops and one of them is why are B- why are all BCBAs hypocrites? I love that and title. <laughs> I think yeah. I don't. I don't. I kind of do the Meryl Winston thing where I'm just gonna like yeah. get you with the title, and then yep. hopefully you come in angry, and I can persuade you to actually listen to me. Mm-hmm. But that's the type of thing that I think would be beneficial is like to really realize like oh you were this upstanding, perfect looking BCBA when you're with your clients, and you go home and you engage in all sorts of a, of attention reinforcing when it comes to your kids when you know mm-hmm. that that's what they're seeking at that point in time, but you don't care because it makes you feel better and all that other stuff that comes with punishment or aversives. But it's, it's hard. It, it really is because in the moment, like behaviors everywhere. So yep. like when I'm done with work, I, my kids are still behaving good or yes. bad. They're still behaving. So I just mm-hmm. have to be able to like escape it. off and go do something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So something like that, a really great title, Why Are All BCBAs Hypocrites? I have actually never worked for a private equity-backed company. Um, I've worked for places that have considered um, the the acquisition. But I guess where I... I get a little uh, speechless in, in terms of how I see all of this because the places I've worked for have been run and owned by multiple BCBAs, and they have been just as horrendous as the experiences from the people that have told me they've worked for private equity. So, yeah, I I mean, I feel like there is, if there is a massive financial gain and a, a, a financial motivation, whereas you have this private equity investor that doesn't have clinical background or any understanding of how this works, then sure, it could be argued that it's easier to fall into the trap of profit. But I've also seen BCBAs fall into the trap of profit. I think the the new nature of this field, mm-hmm. it's still kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> There's not – if you – like let's put it this way. If I have an RBT that I hire mm-hmm. and they – don't need me because they're working for other companies because they're independent contractors. I know that's super sure. taboo. 
but either way, they're independent <laughs> contractors sometimes. And they have other companies they're working for. They have a listed supervisor on the BACB website, which means mm-hmm. that person is supervising them. So I don't necessarily need to be their listed supervisor. I should be sure. and I'm always asked to be. But if that person is no longer supervising them and they go to another company and they're billing or they open, you know, they hang a shingle themselves and they start billing because they're Medicaid credentialed, it can take months mm-hmm. of billing at 40 hours a week to figure out that that person is committing fraud. And yeah. at that point in time, maybe they're going to, you know, pull that shingle up and leave and they're going to be not completely devoid of prosecution, but maybe it's going to be harder to find them. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's kind of the Wild West is problematic for our field in general. When I was in Connecticut, they brought licensure there, which brought a little bit of stability and a little bit of oversight more than what the BACB does. Because sure. despite what people think, they have an ethics code, they have um, certification requirements, but they're not the governing body of all BCBAs. Right. And it's if you're at a state level and you're engaging in fraud, the state has to bring the charges. The BACB mm-hmm. is not going to bring charges. They might suspend your license or, or your certification. But that makes it so that it is kind of the Wild West. And anyone can just be credentialed with Medicaid. You have an interview in Florida and they say, yeah, you're good. You have these vetted credentials and you're going to provide service. Do you need to be a BCBA? No, you can be an RPN. You can be uh, an LCSW. You can be really anyone. And then those BCBAs are the ones that are providing service and they're under you. But again, working for fields, working in the field for companies that don't have your same ethics or your same guidelines is problematic. So it doesn't matter whether it's private equity. I think that's a problem because generally at the top of that private equity firm is not a BCBA. And then you have BCBAs that are fraud because BCBAs are people just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. We're all susceptible to falling into the same sorts of mental traps, which is something I think I would like to see that discussed more often because I think private equity, we have had really poor experiences with it. Um, but they almost become the scapegoat when, in right. fact, there are a lot of BCBAs that are at fault, too, because all of us are at fault in some sort of way. None of us are, are like you said, devoid of, you know, um, doing the wrong thing. But in terms of ABA therapy, we're in the Wild West. It's a very new field, relatively. We're still trying to figure out what exactly it almost sometimes feels like we're trying to figure out what our values even are and what the purpose of ABA is. I've had bosses that are BCBAs that have their own children with autism refer to ABA as lifelong therapy. Yeah. That is I tell every insane. single parent when we start, yeah, no, I, my biggest problem with the psychology field in general when I was an undergrad was mm-hmm. I noticed at that point in time that we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough licensed, credentialed people to provide service for all the people that need it or would benefit from it, whether you know that you need it or not. Yeah. And the reason why I gravitated towards ABA when I found out exactly kind of what it was, not what it did, but like what it was at its core is, you know, we're coming in there and we're going to hit it and quit it. We're going to, you know, manage this behavior and we're going to move on. I tell every single one of my parents that. And I've heard people say, like, it's your job to fire me down the line. Like, I want to be fired. I don't want to come see you anymore. But people get so complacent with the money that's coming in, 20, 30, 40 hours a week of billing for an RBT, plus on top of that, you know, 10 to 20% extra for each higher credential person. You're coming up to like 50, 60 hours at 40 to $80 an hour. Like, that's lucrative. But there's plenty of clients. There's plenty of people that need our help. So this kid who's essentially normal, doing air quotes, normal looking and normal acting, but has an autism diagnosis, they're not benefiting from our services anymore. Again, we're here to reduce problem behavior. If I go to Medicaid and ask for an additional six months on this authorization, and there are zero problem behaviors, they're not going to give it to me. And, And sometimes they might not even let me go through the discharge plan that they approve because it's at the end of six months and not going to give me another six months to titrate down. So if we don't tell parents exactly what the goal of ABA is to reduce problem behavior, can we teach social skills? Absolutely. Can we teach interviewing skills and vocational skills? Absolutely. Do we teach ADLs? 100%. I love working with adults so we can do all of those things, but that's mm-hmm. not why we're there from the funding source. Right. Now, if you're privately wealthy or you're part of a research project that's focusing on ADLs with, you know, adult people, then yeah, absolutely. We're going to provide ABA for you. Can we do acceptance and commitment therapy? hundred percent. 
but I wrote the just the initials ACT into a plan. They denied the entire thing. I'm not surprised. So they don't care from Medicaid standpoint in Florida about ACT, even though it's empirically validated and very, very effective. They care about reducing problem behavior. So if we go in and pour honey in the ear and bend over backwards to be a babysitter and help these parents out, we're ultimately not helping them in the long run because we're supposed to be reducing problem behavior and we're going to leave. Mm-hmm. There's people that, you know, when I worked in the school, there was a person who had the same paraprofessional from kindergarten through middle school, through high school, wow. through the transition program until he was 21. And when that person graduated, that mm. para quit the field. So they literally wow. had the same person with them their entire school career. That's I not didn't think that was beneficial. Healthy. No, not Correct. at all. And I get like some, this is, I've, I've run into this problem too. I've had clients that when I, when I worked for other people, they, they wanted to follow me to a different company for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I get that we, we have to be respectful of the fact that they are very vulnerable. A lot of parents of kids with diagnoses of, of different kinds, whether that be a disability or a mental illness, are probably barely keeping it together. They're very emotionally fragile. So when they find someone that they're able to trust with their child, they're going to hang on for dear life, we could all assume. Yep. It's a life I, preserver analogy. It, it is. And I, I don't know why... A lot of places I've worked aren't more mindful of the fact that that just creates another um, really, I hate to keep using the word dysfunctional, but a dysfunctional relationship where you're almost dependent on each other. And like you said, I've seen kids that that have the same practitioner because they demand that the company keep the same BCBA and the same team with this person because, quote unquote, autistic kids need consistency. Do you think that we're using consistency as an excuse? I think it's a crutch. Yeah. People don't like change. Mm-hmm. So having a new therapist, I mean, granted, there's parents out there that'll switch therapists like they change their underwear, but <laughs> there's other people that they want to keep the same thing consistently and they want to just operate in the area that they want to operate in. So it's like, I can provide service in school. I can provide mm-hmm. service at home. I can provide service in the community. I can go to Disney World. I have gone mm-hmm. to Disney World. So, but if you just want me to help out at school, mm-hmm. we're missing a lot of the other areas that we could really be beneficial. So then when I get this kid to a normal, appropriate, acceptable level of their problem behavior and I leave, mm-hmm. what happens if that starts to spring up? We have a little bit of resurgence in the home setting. Are you going to start the whole process over again? I have to restaff that case. Like sometimes getting just approval for a case case can take six months to a year. Mm -hmm. So if we had started that while we were doing it, it's much better, much more beneficial for everyone involved. But parents like, no, we're good right now. School's the the place where he has the problem or, you know, home's the place or just with mom. He doesn't have a problem with dad. So dad doesn't participate in therapy whatsoever. And that's Mm -hmm. really real. But then from my perspective, how do I then kind of like break through? I try to be Mm -hmm. soft and cuddly and warm and fuzzy, but it doesn't always work. And they still push back because ultimately it is their home. So it kind Mm -hmm. of is like what they want. Yeah. We're kind of the guest in their home. And I think we lose that too. We're always guests. Everywhere we go, we're a guest. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Adam, that the way ABA is structured now, with the recommending of oftentimes overprescribed hours and technicians that have very little experience and are kind of thrown into the fire without enough training and oversight. Do you think that that's keeping disabled people disabled enough to be pawns for insurance? It's a lot of loaded words there that I agree with. Um, yes. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, it's very true. I think that the, um, so again, been in the field for a while. I've done more peer reviews, fights, audits with insurance companies over the past year and a half than I ever have before. Oh. And I'm not talking like just like I used to never have a problem. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of myself as a person who recommends the appropriate amount. Sure. So there are times where parents say like, we want 30 hours. I'm like, the kid has no real issues. Like we're, we'll be there for 10. Yeah. Like, no, we want 20. I'm like, well, let's meet in the middle. Let's say 15. So there's a little bit of a compromise there, but I'm not going to 30. So sure. I think that I try to recommend the appropriate amount, but every single thing I'm having to go to a peer review now. I mean, I have a kid right now who 
um, engages in aggression, proper destruction, urination, and all sorts of other things to seek negative social attention. Mm. So it's not attention specifically. We did an FA and I specifically targeted negative social attention, high magnitude and low magnitude, yelling at him and just scolding him like, hey, please don't do that. And you stop it right now. Yeah. And it was it was amazing. Like it came out, you couldn't be more clear. Mm-hmm. So that to me is a, a severe case. Mm-hmm. He's been Baker acted multiple times. Like there's a whole bunch of things going on. And I said, you know, 40 hours, six hours a week for seven days, which is the maximum of Medicaid. No, we're going to give you 30. He can't go to school. He can't leave his house. He can't do anything. And it's a situation where I think 40 hours is the minimum that we should be asking for. And they're pushing back and saying 30. I'm like, mm. come on, people. Like, I'm trying to help this person just get in and manage the behavior. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, reduce the hours as much as we possibly can. But there's so far reaching that I need more time. I need, I just need that time so I can work with them. But they're just fighting on everything. And again, saying one in one client's thing, like saying that there's an act mm-hmm. um, diffusion technique that we're going to use. They don't like that. So they deny the entire claim and they're not going to give us the 10 hours for the adult when he's taking a sledgehammer and, you know, threatening his mother with it. Like what, what, what 10 hours seems appropriate as far as I'm concerned. So all these people that are over prescribing and over authorizing and over requesting, it comes down in a bad way. And now we're getting to be under people's thumbs and it's really going to ultimately hurt the clients, my opinion. So you brought up the Baker Act. First, I want you to explain it to people that don't know what that is because I have follow-up um, questions for you about that. So to my understanding, I'm not a subject matter expert on the Baker Act because as I'm quickly realizing, I'm learning more and more about it every day that it happens. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's a 72-hour psychiatric hold. Mm-hmm. So if a person is uh, a minor and they're threatening to kill themselves or they're threatening to harm other people or they actually are in the act of harming other people, uh, the police may be called, but it's not an emergency where they would need to be arrested. They would need It's a mental health concern. And it's difficult because I know of people whose children attempted suicide early in the school year and they got Baker acted and they mm-hmm. were, you know, had to bring brought to the hospital and had their stomachs pumped and all those types of things. And then yeah. they're like, well, we don't have a space for you. So we need to release you into the exact mm. same environment that caused you that problem. So it's like yeah. this thing is set up so that we can try to help people yeah. that are harming themselves or harming other people. But then we don't have the resources to actually provide that help. Mm-hmm. And that person is thrust back again into the same situation that caused them that distress in the first place. Yeah. And the the idea of psychiatric holds, this is something that is uh, also a lot of these psychiatric facilities are also being infiltrated by private equity. And I read an article recently that they're becoming not necessarily psychiatric, you know, a 72 hour hold, but a hospital setting. That's where they're starting to bring adults with autism because the wait list for actual day rehabilitation centers or group homes are two to three years long in terms of their wait list. And a lot of these kids uh, kids, a lot of these adults, I mean, their parents are aging too. So their parents aren't in a position to help them or, or provide enough support in the home setting. And because of their age, insurance isn't a factor. They could get a grant from the state depending on where they live. But it really puts families in an awful position to either say, I'm giving them not enough support at home, or I'm sending them to go sit in their own feces and urine for four days at a time. It, it's just an awful decision for families to have to make. It is. And it's, they have to make it because it's, they're in dire straits. Mm -hmm. So when I, I used to work in a school system as an employee, and one of the first things that they did was they changed, this has nothing to do with ABA, but it's kind of like an, an interesting analogy. They changed their insurance policy and they increased the cost that it was uh, for employees if they went to the emergency room, but they weren't admitted because what they were doing is when they would get the sniffles, they would go to the emergency room because it was a very, very low deductible or very, very low amount of money out of the pocket because we had really good insurance. It was the teacher's insurance, essentially. So they they raised that and they saw that the emergency room visits went a lot, went down a lot, and they were going to urgent care and they're going to their doctors. But I can't get in to see my doctor for 
the sniffles or if I have the flu or I have I don't feel good for months at a time. So I have to go to urgent care. But then what if urgent care is booked up and I have to go to the emergency room or I have to make the decision? Is this an emergency or is it isn't? So to circle back to the autism thing, if you have a 76 year old parent with a 42 year old adult autistic child, you can't take you can barely take care of yourself, let alone their needs. And if you've been doing it up to this point, the emergency might be warranted and you might need to put them into a psychiatric facility. And I think it's a little hyperbolic, but not really that much in that they're going to be in their, you know, feces and urine. It's not a good situation. Those people are not meant to be there for long periods of time. Yeah. Do you think that has to do with part of what we hear about how there's a constant shortage of psychiatric beds available to people? Because now we're telling young, not even young people, everyone, if you feel distress, if you feel any form of suicidal ideation, your place, your next best place to go is the emergency room. So now the emergency room is not taking your typical, I, you know, I have my femur bone sticking out of my skin, but it's now people who are, who feel like they're in immense distress. Do do you feel like that's an appropriate course of action in terms of bringing them to the emergency room or? I absolutely don't. I think that the, the helping fields Mm -hmm. need to start taking a little bit from the self-help fields just Mm. because we don't have enough qualified professionals to help the amount of people that need help or would benefit from help. Not to say that they need it like it's an emergency, but just the people that would benefit from help and improve their overall quality of life. You know, our field, I think we're, we need like 75 or 80,000 BCBAs to match the amount of, you know, people with autism that need services. And we're at like 30 or 40. So we're at half capacity. So that means that for every person that needs help, that, you know, that's the amount that we're in errors. Like we need that amount of, that, that, that many more people. Mm-hmm. And it's not any different in the psychology fields, in the nursing fields, in all these other fields. And these ABA is fantastic because it's so far reaching and it could benefit a lot of people from a self-help perspective. Sure. I just don't think people are reaching out and trying to do those types of things. Take a little bit I- of ownership of your own problems. That's what I'm trying to say. A thousand percent. And I, I, you know, I post about this all the time, as you and me have discussed. I think there's a concept that Kayla doesn't believe in burnout. Kayla doesn't believe in therapy. Um, I, my first degree is in clinical psychology. I think I'm very familiar with the positive effects of therapy. My problem is that we're focusing a little bit too much on how the environment is primarily to, to blame for our problems. And we're seeking out therapy and not saying that people shouldn't, we we all, that should be a, a basic, well, I can't even say that therapy is a basic human right. Um, but we all should be afforded the ability to go see a therapist or talk to someone if we feel that we're unable to manage it ourselves. Where I have a problem is the feeling that we constantly can't manage things ourselves when we very much can. We've just been told, you're burnt out, you have imposter syndrome, you might be depressed if X, Y, Z. And I think that just creates um, a constant churning of a need for therapy where it might not even exist. Yeah, if you constantly are told that you have this problem and the solution to this problem is someone else, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for you to accept ownership of the solution for that problem. Mm-hmm. So are you bored in boring situations or do you have ADHD? <laughs> so it's like, listen, probably I get former. bored all the time. Yeah. I do too. It's probably the former more than the latter. Mm-hmm. And But if you go on to social media and you look at things like, you know, I'm a little OCD. No, you're not. You're. Have you met someone with OCD? It's debilitating. It's brutal. They can't, yes. they can't engage in the most minute tasks. Mm-hmm. The, the the Michael J. Fox did a guest spot on Scrubs, and I don't know if you saw that episode, but at one point in time, uh, JD, who's the main character, was sitting there and he was revering this doctor that Michael J. Fox was playing, and he was oh, he was a little bit quirky. And then at the end of the episode, he tries to leave the hospital, and the the character that Michael J. Fox is playing is going in and out of the sliding door. Oh. And he's sitting there and he's like, what's going on? He goes, he goes, you're such a fantastic doctor and everything, but he's like, you're, you're struggling with this. And essentially I'm paraphrasing where he says, I have so much other stuff going on that mm-hmm. 
it's like I'm living in hell. He goes, I can't leave this building until that door hits. I step on that exactly as I'm exhaling. So it's Mm. like that exact sequence in his mind needs to hit. Otherwise, he won't be able to move on. So yeah, you're a fantastic doctor. But are you a little OCD? Are you a little like that? Now, granted, that's a dramatization. But when saying I'm a little ADHD, I'm a little autistic, I'm a little OCD, Mm. that does a lot of disservice to the people that actually are suffering from these diagnoses. It does. And again, even if you have those diagnoses, you should still try to help yourself because like we've talked about and like everyone is discussing, there's a shortage in all of the helping fields. So it's either, do you want to keep going down this path where things are getting worse and worse and worse for you? Or do you want to take some extreme ownership and try to fix your problems to the best of your ability? I would go so far. Obviously, you know where I stand on this is to mm-hmm. go with the latter. I had posted a video of a blind, a legally blind adult, and you and me had shared some interaction about it, I think, where he said that in college, his professor wouldn't accommodate the need for jumbo print font on all of his exams. And we mentioned now that that would probably be a violation against the ADA Act. But in that time, who knows what the laws around disability and right. accommodations right. were. But I really liked his his candor when he was referring to, you know, I could have just sat around and waited for my professors to provide an accommodation or I could have figured it out myself. And that for some reason, I'm not sure why telling people that they're capable of of taking extreme ownership of their challenges is considered ableist. And I think telling (laughs) someone that they're capable is the most normal thing to tell someone. Yeah. It's giving them dignity. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You're giving them ownership. You're giving them the sense of pride that they can accomplish this and they can overcome whatever obstacle they're setting that they're encountering. Mm -hmm. Um, My daughter grew up uh, and when she was about one years old and she had, she got diagnosed with an egg allergy and Mm -hmm. thankfully it's kind of not that serious. She's not going to go into supreme anaphylaxis or anything like that. It's not life threatening. She has an EpiPen, but she started to realize just the simple question of asking people, does this have egg in it? At two and three years old, she's asking that question because if she eats something that has egg in it because she didn't ask the question when she's at school when I can't be there and her teacher has to manage 15 other kids, it's on her to take responsibility for that. The world does not owe you supreme modifications outside what is an acceptable level. So And just to say that someone else is going to care as much about your situation as you care about your situation is also really difficult. Um, I'm acquaintances with a one-armed MMA fighter by the name of Nick Newell. So if anyone's ever heard his story, I think they recently did a a major motion picture about him. He's extremely inspiring, but he doesn't consider himself inspiring. He considers himself just like this is something that he was different. He was born without a left arm, I think it was, or below the elbow. And he went on to become an MMA champion. Yes, he had to work hard, but he put himself in situations where everyone had to work hard. Everyone was a wrestler that had to work hard. The wrestling is not an easy thing. So the fact that he only had one fully functioning arm was a challenge, but there were other people who possibly had asthma. There are other people that were overweight or there are other people that had to overcome, you know, mental issues and mental health disorders and things like that, that had mental block to working that hard. So to say that, telling him that he's capable and he can do it. That's what gave him the ability to actually go and do that and accomplish great, great things. And that's essentially what his parents instilled in him. Like the world is not going to give you anything. You have to essentially make it yourself. And if we constantly wait around for people to give us things, we're going to be waiting a lot longer than if we go out and seek them ourselves and try to make things happen. Yeah. And, you know, I I try to be really empathetic to the fact that people who do require a a maximal level of support, like very young children, people with severe debilitating disabilities or mental illness, they, of course, are going to require more support than, I guess, the neurotypical or normal person. But even to a degree, uh, to to the extent of giving them some form of dignity and treating them with the same respect that we would anybody else, I think it's incredibly... It, to coddle them and, and teach them that they can't possibly survive unless someone is there readily able to give them an accommodation. That's a horrible way to go about therapy. And I think that's why therapy has become an insurance mill of sorts. Like It, it doesn't seem like it's aimed at teaching them self-governance. It's aimed at teaching them, as long as you're with me, you will be okay. 
That's a very good point. Yeah. I, and then if that is essential, that's, that's, not, that's no longer a prompt. A therapist should be a prompt for you to move on and you to acquire this skill on your own. They should be facilitating a acquisition of that skill. But if they are essential, they're the person you yeah. can run to and call at four o'clock in the morning when you're having a panic attack. What happens when that person isn't there? So Because they will if, inevitably not be there at one point or another. Correct. Because three o'clock in the morning, I'm not answering my phone for clients. <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to happen. It's on silent. It doesn't yeah. mean that I don't care. It just means that I have to set my own boundaries as well because I can't let you, my helping you affect my mental health and my you know quality of life and my well-being. But in that same situation, what do you think is a more beneficial outcome? Do you think screaming that you're not getting what you want and making a huge fuss and possibly affecting change, or do you think going out there and doing something and getting a similar result, but you have some ownership and you have some sweat equity in that? Now, for me, I would rather the latter. I would much rather me push forward through whatever obstacles are in front of me because I'm the person that likes to take the control of the ship, especially if it's my ship. But a lot of people aren't like that. And I, I think that the, the people who are waiting for things to come to them if they took a little bit of that effort instead of having a tantrum and put it into some actual work to help themselves, they would actually get the results that much faster. And they might actually be able to then take that skill and help other people, which then helps the deficit that we have in general. So you can become an asset as opposed to a liability. I love that. I love the way you phrase that. I wonder how much of this, because I, I really have seen just an explosion of dependency in the last couple of years. I wonder how much of this has has to do in some loose sense to the obsession with a post-pandemic wellness. Like we went through a horrible pandemic and we are all mentally in some form of a crisis. We need to get back to a state of wellness and optimization. I feel like that's where I saw um, a ton of, of these really um, – popular mental health trends come out that actually just kept people stagnant versus teaching any sort of a skill that alludes to what you spoke about, which is being able to take care of ourselves, essentially. Yeah, because our we never experienced a pandemic. We never experienced, like, that's a loaded word. It's a scary time. It's a, mm -hmm. you know, we think that we were all hunky-dory and fantastic before the pandemic. So we want to get back to pre-pandemic. It's not, we weren't. Yeah. It was it was a slow build. It might have it exacerbated it. It might have sped it up. Yeah. Exactly. It just revealed itself. Um, I mean, my grandmother's 97 years old and she wasn't oh, wow. around for the Spanish flu. You know, yeah. she wasn't around in 1918 when the last time we had a major pandemic. No mm -hmm. one, none of no one that I know was around during the plague. So it's like mm -hmm. we haven't lived through this and we got these buzzwords and this fear thrown at us constantly about, yeah. you know, and and a lot of that was again everyone else should be in control of yes. fixing the situation. The public health administration, the schools, the governments, you need to do this to protect me. What about you protecting yourself? If you're, listen, if you're terrified of something, there's a danger that's out there, legitimate or illegitimate, don't leave your house. That you, like, that's your perfect right. There's, a, there's enough things in this world now now, granted, it might cost a little bit of money if you want to door dash it as opposed to go to the store. But there's there's options out there and you need to weigh the weigh the pros and the cons. So to say that we're going to try to get back to something that it's a pipe dream. It's like looking back on a failed relationship and being like, oh, I miss them so much. I really but you don't remember that. how terrible it was. It was terrible. That's <laughs> yeah. why you're not in the relationship anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like with the world purposely making everything so easy, uh, things were generally easy. We all experience hardship. Life is impossible without that. And it builds character, enough character to be able to attack all of these problems head on. But uh, we generally had things pretty easy with technological, medicinal, what have you, educational advances. We're now trying to make things even more easy while simultaneously normalizing all of the things that are not supposed to be easy or normal. And I don't think that that helps either. Yeah, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's really confusing. When you're it's like, so I want confusing. this to be easy. And when you sit there and say like, oh, but I don't want it to be easy. I want this to happen. Like, It's, it's yeah. very, very confusing. I work in uh, a white collar field, essentially, like. Yeah, we get our butts kicked sometimes, but I'm mm -hmm. not out there, you know, laying pavement or, you know, framing a house. 
a lot of people that I know in white collar fields have blue collar hobbies. Mm-hmm. They go outside, they get dirty, they go camping, they, you know, engage in hobby woodworking or, you know, they, maybe they forge some stuff or maybe they do welding and things like that. There's benefits in sweat equity. There's benefits yeah. in putting physical effort forward. So to and that's not something that's easy. Oh, that's not something not. that is going to be given to you. Yeah, like, yes, of course. If you go and you purchase a cutting board, you can purchase a cutting board for a nominal amount of money. But you're going to feel a lot more prideful if you make the cutting board yourself and possibly look at your fingers and like, holy crap, it's there's there you know to the bone, and you know I don't have finger fingerprints anymore. There's a lot more pride that's associated with that than if you just go and get the box that the Amazon driver gave you. So yeah. it's going to mean a lot more to you when ultimately it's done. So that's, you know, coming back to the ownership, giving something, um, get, taking something from someone else versus doing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. It just it, It's so disappointing to me that something like ownership and being able to reap the benefits of doing, of, of pushing forward and persevering through something incredibly challenging where the benefits of it sometimes are quite delayed. So they're, you're mm-hmm. teaching yourself to put off any form of reinforcement and build resilience despite frustration, despite failure. I would think that those skills in and of themselves would set you up to uh, as an act as a buffer against all of these. You're triggered all of the time. Make sure you find a safe space sort of therapies that are out there. And I just, I, I can't, I can't wrap my head around the concept that ownership and even self-discipline is something that is um, frowned upon. I, I don't understand it. It makes absolutely no sense to me, mostly because there are going to be situations that occur in your life that you have absolutely no control over and they suck. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Are you just going to sit there and let them happen to you while people are while you're waiting on other people to come and fix them? Like learn helplessness, right? Exactly. And this is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of conversation either. It's just try to make steps towards progress. You don't have to accomplish everything on your own, but if you just sit there and wait, the journey won't even start. So start to make little steps towards progress and. You might be further along when the help actually does come, which therefore means you'll need less help, which mm-hmm. means that then it'll be done that much sooner rather than just sitting there and waiting. Because those people that you're waiting on helping you have a significantly less of a vested interest in your outcome than you do. Well, on that same on that same token, in term, referring back to things being very confusing, the the small behaviors we engage in the approximations towards a goal sometimes i think that they're they're not really approximations they're stand-ins for it so we read something about how we may be suffering more than the average person and we believe that we have reaped some sort of benefit just by reading or we attend a workshop uh, and without actually applying any of the skills that we learn and we feel or we give ourselves the illusion we trick our mind into believing that we actually did something yeah, it's so, like a Dunning-Kruger effect where yeah. you don't know something, but you think that you do. So a little bit, a little bit of experience and intelligence you take to make that you're a subject matter expert or more experienced mm-hmm. than you are. And it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous, especially in psychological fields where we feel like we could approach any sort of issue because we have XYZ minimal knowledge of XYZ concept. Right. And, and in those types of fields, they use words that are easy to understand. They're words that are in our everyday vernacular. Whereas if you go to a doctor or a surgeon, I don't think that anyone has an illusion that they can perform an appendectomy on themselves because of just the language that's used when it comes to biology. But everyone thinks that they can diagnose themselves of with this, this disorder because it uses words and behaviors and things that you understand. Mm -hmm. It purposely resonates with the human experience. Right. Exactly. In terms of the human experience, Canada has taken quite an interesting approach to the human experience, specifically um, the end of the human experience. So assisted suicide, uh, their euthanasia laws are some of the most permissive in in the world, which is frightening in and of itself. I'm going to read you something that I picked up here from um, a recent article. All right. Here's the quote from an article about assisted suicide. 
Many Canadians support euthanasia and the advocacy group Dying with Dignity, saying the procedure is driven by compassion, an end to suffering and discrimination, and desire for personal autonomy. Human rights activists, on the other hand, say that the country's regulations lack necessary safeguards, devaluing the lives of disabled people, and they're promoting doctors and health workers to suggest the procedure to those who don't even, uh, who might not even otherwise consider it. This was in response to a 61 year old who was deaf, who was also had a comorbid mental illness. And he asked to be essentially put to death. And two days later he was, what are your thoughts on this? I have a lot of thoughts on this and some of them are probably going to conflict with the other thoughts that I have on this. Um, first I think autonomy is a great thing. I think that Mm -hmm. people being able to do what they want with their own bodies and their own lives, so long as it doesn't affect negatively on other people, is a paramount right that we have as human beings and specifically human beings that live in the United States. With that being said, I know how flawed the medical governmental system is. So I can't imagine that this going swimmingly and smoothly when you give someone the right to take their own life, but it has to be a medical procedure or a um, uh, you know, Department of Justice procedure or whatever policy that they have in place. As soon as you involve government and bureaucracy, it muddles things down. I'm actually surprised that the person wanted to do it and within two days it was done. I mean, I think that that person has the right to end their own life via assisted suicide in a way that doesn't cause them harm or pain any more than ending your life normally would. But I just worry that the administration of that policy would be flawed just because you're going to involve government and things like that. Yeah. So the parameters around the assisted suicide, uh, specifically for those with disabilities, had to do very similar to what you see in court regarding um, lacking sound, uh, being not of sound mind, lacking the mm-hmm. um, emotional and intellectual capacity to make a decision like this. So those things apparently were completely waived in this case. For the person who was deaf, who this man who was 61, he claimed that his sole purpose for not wanting to to go on living was because he couldn't hear anything and it was it was completely destroying his quality of life. Now, there was his brother also claimed that he wasn't properly using his cochlear implant. He wasn't going through any of the hearing therapies and other, um, he wasn't making use of any of the other interventions that were offered to him. And Canada still allowed him to end his life despite all of this information. So, I mean, in terms of what's muddy, how do you, who decides like what the parameters are then? Well, in working with adults, one thing that happens that I don't think a lot of people realize. So if there's any parents out there that are going to listen to this that mm-hmm. have an adult or a, a soon to be adult child with a disability that you're concerned that they're going to be able to understand right from wrong, um, you need to actually start a process to have guardianship removed from themselves. Like Mm -hmm. as soon as everyone in this country hits 18, they are their own legal guardian. And the process is very difficult to get that changed. So Mm -hmm. if this man was his own guardian and capable of making his own decisions in view of a court and his family up until the point where he was 61, that process might take longer than the assisted suicide process when it comes to Canada. So if he chooses to not wear his cochlear implant, if he chooses to you know, not attend his mental health counseling or take his psychotropic medication, if that's what he's taking, that's his right. He's allowed to do that. And then if he then wants to end his own life, I think that that should be available because much like abortion, if it's going to happen, we should figure out a safe and, you know, as minimally harmful and as much humanitarian way as possible is having that procedure be completed. So whether you agree with it or not, there are ways to kill yourself. So should we, should we not do that? Should you not die with dignity in that situation? So, and again, coming back to the, to the, you know, the bureaucracy and all that tough type of stuff that supports it, maybe they should have gotten a stay of execution for lack of a better term while they argued his competency and ability to make his own decisions. But also I'm wrought with this thought that were they pushing back his brother, were they pushing back on him dying because it made them feel bad. Like, is this person being alive and suffering, making me feel better because he's alive? And that's, I think, a lot of times what happens when it comes to when you're taking care of other people, 
you might be not honoring their wishes, but they're not living with dignity right now as far as he's concerned. You are because you're not, are you sitting there 24 hours a day, seven days a week with him? I doubt that very much. So if you're not present in that situation, then wouldn't you kind of have to take a step back with the ultimate decision, whether the person wants to stay alive or, you know, end their life. I think even on a general wide scale, I see this applied to so many professions that have to do with um, assisting or helping others in some sort of way is we start to confuse the line between, is this going to be good for me? Not necessarily in, in the sense that it's performative, but you know, it, this could be a subconscious thought that, for example, in, the, in regards to children, a lot of people uh, keep their children from or shield them from things that they find harmful because it makes them feel better because they mm-hmm. don't want to have to uh, experience their child supposedly in pain. And I, I talked a little bit about this uh, kind of projecting our own ideas of what another person must be feeling onto them for our own benefit. I, I, I feel like that's what is the, uh, the stone in everybody's shoe, especially in a case like assisted suicide or resisting it for people who are clearly suffering. Cause they're still the way that that's phrased, the way that that's propositioned is it makes them a bad person and they don't yeah. think of themselves as a bad person. Mm-hmm. They don't think of themselves as an uncaring, unfeeling person, which is why I want this person to stay alive. But in actuality, mm-hmm. you're being selfish. This person does not want to be here. They should be able to have ownership of that. They should have autonomy of their body. So you're essentially controlling their body by saying like, I want them to be here. Death yeah. is, I've experienced death a lot in my life and mm-hmm. it's never easy to deal with. And the later you go before you experience true loss, the harder it is for you to cope with that. So people mm-hmm. are going to fight tooth and nail to not experience that loss. Now imagine at 61, this person probably has already lost their parents, but maybe they haven't, or maybe that you know it was after a long bout of illness and it was a welcome reprieve to per- know that this person that they loved is at peace. This person, his brother, that's you know wanting to to kill himself, is not suffering from this person's perspective, so he doesn't see the benefit, doesn't see the peace that would be gained through this assisted procedure. But that's not always the case. And again, having this go down the road further and further without you truly experiencing it makes it so when someone tells you that, you know, you're a monster because you won't let them, you know, kill themselves. It's like, well, wait, I'm not a monster. I'm a good person. I want them to stay alive. Alive is good. But what if alive yeah. isn't good? So it's like this, yeah. mud, again, it's just, it's very confusing and very muddy. I think that would make it really difficult to carry, to continue to find ways to carry stuff like this out. But on that same token, when we specifically in scientific fields, like like ours, or, or what ours is supposed to be, <laughs> <laughs> to throw that dig nice, in there. That's a nice copy. I, I like that. <laughs> um, sometimes I think it rigid adherence to ethical standards is what keeps us from recognizing suffering in very unique situations like this. Well, ethically, like you said, I am a morally good person. I'm morally bound by my ethics code to uh, increase your quality of life. And you dying, you can't have any quality of life if you're dead. I think in a lot of ways, like really um, rigid ethical codes kind of stand to reduce the complexity of these sorts of situations. Yeah. And it's not a reductionist approach, but I think everyone can generally agree that mm-hmm. killing a child is bad. Mm-hmm. Murder yep. of children is, is not good, but yeah. it's a thought exercise. Would you kill one child to, to cure cancer? Would you kill one child mm-hmm. to end poverty? Mm-hmm. And then if you sit with that thought and you think about it and you're like, all right, I'm a very pragmatic person. I'm a black and white type of person. Yeah, I'll kill that kid. And be like, well, you're a kid killer. And now you're labeled as a kid killer and you're, you're perfectly fine with, you know, murder of children. And I'm like, yeah, but you're missing the nuance of that situation. There's no good that comes from this. A child is dying or many, many children and other people are dying due to poverty. So there's no good in this. It's just a cost benefit that has to be done. So it, that type of situation, it can very easily be spinned either through your own self-talk or people projecting it onto you that the decision that you made with the best of intentions was the wrong one and you're a terrible person for making it. But you need to be able to sit with your decisions when you make them. Yeah. That is quite the heavy but poignant way to end our talk today. Adam, is there anything that you want to leave us with before you head out? Anywhere we could find you? What are you up to in the coming weeks? 
So on Instagram, probably be the best place to find me, the outdoor BCBA. If you awesome. are an RBT, if you're a BCABA, if you're a BCBA, you like what I have to say, you think that I'm crazy and kind of an asshole and you want to slide into my DMs and say that, I'm happy to, to listen to all of that. If you want some guidance and some advice, I'm happy to do that as well. Um, I little bit of advice for anyone in the helping field, specifically that deals with aggressive types of people. I've been practice, practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for probably the better part of 13 years. It is the single greatest asset that I have to dealing with physical and psychological management of clients. These people are not trying to harm you. They're just trying to communicate. And the best way to diffuse the situation is to get into a, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but to get into one of these um, classes, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Muay Thai, boxing, anything that teaches you how the human body moves and how you can manipulate it so that you can keep yourself safe from a defensive perspective. I'm not throwing chokeholds on clients. I'm not arm barring them. Yeah. I'm not punching them in the face, but I'm using all these tactics to try to keep me and them safe. And it's a huge, huge benefit. And along with that, put yourself in difficult physical situations mm -hmm. that are sometimes mediated by other people because they're going to be able to push you farther than you're going to be able to push yourself and you're going to learn how to overcome that type of adversity so take ownership and yeah that's pretty much all i have to say on that it's beautiful could not agree more adam thank you so much for joining me today i look forward to having you in uh, in future episodes absolutely kayla thank you very much all right we'll see ya <laughs>